Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where super modifieds are king, methanol is aromatic, and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, Race Chaser Media's Tom Baker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside Groove Supermodified Podcast. My name is Tom Baker. Glad that you are aboard for another, uh, well, not sure how long this show is going to end up being yet, because we've got a doubleheader today. We are, uh, this is the Robbie and Bobby show. We've had uh, two interviews that we've kind of been holding on to. We didn't start out to do that, but then uh, the new series broke and all of the sort of back and forth about that and the flux of it started happening. So we had an opportunity to sort of, um, I don't want to call it address breaking news, but sometimes current news, you just want to kind of get that, uh, going and, uh, not delay it too much. So we, uh, just sort of kept, uh, Robbie Bruce and Bobby Timmons in the can until, uh, this particular show and, Looking forward to presenting both of them to you because they were both uh, a lot of fun to do. It was the first time for both of them on this show, and it was great to really be able to have that time to sit and uh, let them talk about the racing and uh, all of the things that they got going on. So we will uh, be bringing you both of those today. And of course, this is episode 90, so we always play a little what's in a number So we'll uh, deal with the number 90 a little bit later in the show as well. And speaking of all of that sort of flux uh, and breaking news and news series and all of that, I can tell you that our very special guest for the next Inside Groove, which will be episode 91, is going to be Danny Sewell. I am so excited that Danny uh, is excited to talk about his dad and, and the kind of whole Sewell family racing history his career and of course uh, we'll get to um the isma stuff as well current day um really really thankful that uh danny reached out and so uh by the time you hear this show that interview will already be uh done as well and so that's uh good news for at least for me hopefully for you all as well i know i'm gonna enjoy it and i hope you do as well uh it should be a lot of fun to talk to danny i uh, man the soul 32 has been around i don't even know um i don't know if it's late 60s maybe around 70 71 but uh certainly jim has a long history uh jim had a long history and then of course danny carried that on and still is to this day so really excited to do that First of all, before we do anything else, thank you to three fine businesses who are such good supporters of this show, Jeff West and all of the staff at IPC Indy, that's Indy Performance Composites. Uh, go visit them, IndyPerformanceComposites.com. Rich Worth and the folks at JNS Paving, uh, really thankful for their support. And of course, Sean Cathcart, um, and the staff at Skip's Fish Fry and, of course, LeGroff's Pub. I was thinking the other day that I have never been to the LeGroff's Pub because I haven't been able to get up there since uh, Sean uh, made that his own and has um, 
made a lot of changes to it and obviously reopened it and so forth. And uh, hopefully it's doing well. I can't wait to get up there at some point um, here soon and get in and try it. And um, always excited to go to Skip's as well, because I do think it is the absolute best fish in town. But you know what? If you're not into fish, they got burgers and dogs and all kinds of good stuff. So um, it's a great place to go eat and uh, right in the middle of downtown. So uh, not hard to get to either. So thanks to all three of those folks. I don't have a lot more uh, to talk about in this open here. Um, which is probably good news because I talk too much on this show, but, uh, it is my show after all. So, um, <laughs> I guess I get to do that. Um, we, uh, I will say this though, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And you know, when I, when I think about a Bengals Rams Super Bowl, I'm kind of torn, right? I mean, I know this isn't a football show, but you know, we all, I think most of us are into, into football in some sort of way. We all have favorites. Hated that the Bills didn't get to the Super Bowl because I really thought that this could be their year. Um, but, uh, you know, Cincinnati getting there and finally having a chance to win the Super Bowl to me is a great underdog story. And the way I look at it is I'm kind of cheering for the Bengals. I'm sort of an AFC guy anyway. But um, if if the Bengals don't win, that means Matthew Stafford finally did. I mean, he's... I think he's paid his dues in Detroit long enough to deserve a Super Bowl win in L.A., right? Um, so I just hope it's a great game, and I have the feeling it will be. So uh, as I record this, we got about uh, four and a half hours to game time. So definitely excited about all of that. With that, I am going to just stop right there and say we'll be back with more of the Inside Groove. Robbie Bruce is on deck. Stay with us. Hey. Here's a little fish tale for you. It's about a place named Skip's Fish Fry. Skip's Fish Fry is located at 42 West 2nd Street in Oswego. They're open Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 7. So don't call them on Sunday or Monday. They're gone fishing. They are open Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 7. They serve a variety of great fish, burgers, Hoffman hot dogs, conies, lobster, soup, salad. They even have cheesecake if you feel like some delicious dessert. I love their haddock pieces. That's one of my favorites. Uh, And they just have great food. It is the best fish in the Port City. I'm not just saying that because they're a sponsor of the show. It is one of the first places that I go to eat every time I'm in town. So call Skip's Fish Fry or go visit them on their website at skipsfishfry.com. And by the way, you can order online and just go pick it up. It's a great way to go ahead and take care of the not-so-fun part before you get there. And then when you get there, just pick up your food, bring it home, and enjoy. Skip's Fish Fry, 42 West 2nd Street in Oswego. Go visit them. Welcome back. And for the first time, we have a Bruce on the show whose first name is not Mike. Uh, We have Robbo on the show with us, Robbie Bruce. And, uh, man, Rob, it's great to talk to you and great to uh, have you on. I am curious. um, I know, obviously, you grew up uh, with with Mike racing, but were, were you a race fan prior to Mike getting involved? Or talk about kind of your first memories of of uh racing and going to the track uh my fr- first memory that I, I can remember actually is uh i was going up i was up in the stands with my uncle bob and 
My parents were in the pits working on the Jeff Albrook crew with Bobby and Dave. Oh, Freitag, okay. And I, uh, I remember losing my shoe down the garbage chute when I was younger. <laughs> and I, I wasn't able to go into the pits that night, and I, I lost my shoe. So my uncle didn't want to walk around with my shoe gone. So that was uh. I was probably about five or six years old at that time, so I, I grew up at the Speedway for sure. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, I didn't realize that you were going to a swiggle before because Mike started on the dirt, I think, right? So uh, I might have yep. thought that your first memory would have been a, a dirt track race, but that's interesting that you go that far back. Um, so when when Michael first started, I mean, what 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 were your thoughts on – on uh, Michael starting to race, uh, I think it was, if I remember right, I think it was Brewerton in a, um, not a dwarf car, they have another name for them, but they're basically dwarf cars. Um, yep, the Mod Lights. Yeah, Mod Light, there you go. Um, yep. Yeah, I think that's where you got to start. What what, what, uh, what were you thinking back then? Were you working with him at Brewerton as well? Um, For a while, until I got a little bit bigger, and I was able to actually jack up the car and stuff. Um <laughs> We actually originally started out on the road course in the Squiggle Speedway originally with Mikey in the go-kart. Oh, and, okay. Um, then once he jumped up into the mob bite, it was a few years me in the stands with my mom, but on the out-of-town shows and stuff, we'd go in the pits, and there was one week Mike came in with a flat tire, and I jacked up the car, and my dad started changing the tire, and he went to put the new one on, and I didn't jack it up high enough. So <laughs> that was... um. That was a learning experience for sure, and that's one of the first times I went in the pits, actually, that actually helped in the pits, but we had a, a lot of long nights in the shop when I was younger, learning stuff like that with the mob bite, so it was always a good time. Was it always your desire to actually get in a car and race, or is that something that sort of came along you know, at a certain time, um, did you always want, even when Mike was first starting, did you always want to drive too? Yeah, yeah. It, um, it always intrigued me, for sure. Um, for a while, it, it was talked about for many years of me moving into the mob light so I could get some seat time and stuff oh. before I had started at Oswego. And then uh, Mikey's career started taking off pretty good at Oswego and whatnot, so I kind of got put on the back burner for a few years. and. We focused on Mikey for the most part and got him rolling in the right direction. And uh, finally, this past season there, well, actually, it was two years ago now because of COVID. It kind of oh, messed that's right. things up. Yeah. But uh, finally, two years ago, Mikey said, well, we got the small box sitting there, and he moved up to the 350 and whatnot. So he said, it's time for me to get going. And I remember him saying that uh, he asked me one, one day, he's like, how old are you now? And I think I was 22 or 23 at the time. And I told him, and he's like, really? He's like, wow. And then he apologized. He's like, I'm sorry that it took me so long to get you in the car. He's like, I, I forgot that you were not as young <laughs> as you were and whatnot. So it's, uh, it's always been something I've wanted to do. I, I ran the go-kart for many years, got a few track championships out there at the cartway and stuff. And so I have a little bit of racing experience going into a Swiggo, but nothing more than the go-kart, but. Yeah. It was uh, it was definitely something I've always wanted to do. That's where I first remember you from is racing the go kart, and um, you know, and and then of course uh, working with Mikey on the crew, and and you always worked your ass off and still do, obviously. But um, you know, just uh, it it was it was great to see you finally get the shot. Now you're right, and I and I 
um, the notes that I have here, I, I completely forgot about that missing year, basically, where we didn't race. You actually were practicing, um, you know, during that year and took your first laps in 2020. Yeah. How, first of all, do you feel like, because I thought personally that obviously I hated to see no racing, but I also thought that for rookies like you, the the weekly track time was going to give you a big advantage coming into 2021 and 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 I I thought that um it played out that way what what are your what's your perspective on that in in having had that whole year of just laps and laps and laps without worrying about racing it it was definitely helpful it helped work out with a lot of the butterflies and that that pit in your stomach, you know, yeah. instead of going to Oswego on opening week and you don't have many laps, maybe a session or two. I had, I think, three or four at Oswego and one or two up at Evans Mills. So I definitely had some seat time to get a little bit more comfortable in the car and whatnot. And it's a big jump from the little five-horse clone motors oh, out sure. of the cartway to the, the 602 crate motors. So it, it definitely helped out with getting the butterflies out and getting a little bit of seat time for sure. You said earlier you thought you were going to get some laps in the Mod Light to get experience. Uh, your first experience ended up being in a much bigger car on a much faster track. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's for sure. I, <laughs> I rode around in the yard a few times with the Mod Light and whatnot because Mikey wanted me to get used to using the clutch and whatnot, but we never really went to a track with it or anything, so it never it helped a little bit, but in the Mod Light we had a hand clutch instead of a foot clutch, so it was kind of a completely different situation there right now um tell me about your first laps in the sbs car what was going through your mind because i talked to a lot of people you know your first laps in any race car and it's you know we always i worked at race on driving experience in memphis for a while and we always kind of had a term for that it was basically that you know when you first go out there you just got to remember what your name is and and because your mind is just so you know busy being scrambled trying to take it all in what was it like for you to run those first laps of the sbs what do you remember about it um the first laps i ran in was up at evans mills and uh the first session we went out for we didn't. I never marked down what was first or second or third gear in the car. Oh so boy! I think I took off in third or second, and um, <laughs> I ended up putting it back down in the first because I thought I was in third gear. And Mikey <laughs> comes out waving his hands, and he's like, "Bob, you're in first gear still." And I'm like, "Oh." I was like, "We gotta mark some things in here so I know what gear I'm going to." It wasn't uh, wasn't very smooth on the clutch either, so we tried pushing me off. And, I ended up spinning the tires. I'm pretty sure he took a tumble on the ground. And <laughs> it, it was a it was a good learning experience for sure. But uh, once I got that first session out of the way, I got more comfortable in the car and started actually giving some gas to her. And I wanted that first session or the first trip up to Emmons Mills. I, my goal was to spin the car out. I wanted to kind of get used to Find the edge, how right? much yeah. I can give it and how much I can't, you know, find that sweet spot. and. I definitely did. I think it was my second or third session. I looped it going into one up Evans Mills. It was uh, it was nerve-wracking the first time going around in circles and that thing. So your first time was at Evans Mills then? Yep. yep. Okay. So you actually had a little seat time in it before you got to Oswego. Now when you got to Oswego on the bigger track, then what were your thoughts going out for the first time? Uh, for the most part, I just didn't want to put it in the wall. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that, that's that steel probably, wall is probably very smart. unforgiving. Yes, yes. Mikey's tested that a few times. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, even the foam is not fun. It's just better than the steel. Um, no. Make Luckily, big... I only had one one uh, foamy incident with the foam <laughs> and the steel wall this past year. So, luckily. You actually, I was watching, I saw, uh, I think, all but one of the, the races this year on the broadcast, and, and you were, I was watching the night that you finished, I think it was fourth, and uh, if I remember right, you were racing for the lead a little bit in that race, and actually had the lead, I think, for a bit. Um, talk a little bit about what it was like to kind of go through the season and start getting better and actually be able to race at the front of the field and lead the field. What was that like for you? Um, it's definitely crazy. I mean, I, obviously I grew up at the Speedway, so yeah. I knew I was out there racing with guys that I watched race for years and raced against Mikey, and I know they're hard hard racers and good drivers, and at the same time, I was out leading people that I've raced go-karts with for years, like Noah Ratcliffe and Griffin oh, Miller. that's right, yeah. It was uh, definitely interesting. They always say when you see the cameras start flashing, you know someone's on your bumper, and that's definitely a very true statement. Yeah, that's funny because I remember Doug Hevron talking about that one night way back when, for some reason, I don't know, maybe it was Brian Herb or somebody had caught him and he said, I knew they were there because I saw the cameras flash and that's right. Um, but uh, you you definitely progressed pretty quickly. And um, what was the toughest challenge for you um, in, in, in the car and, in, in you know, in, in the actual racing? Um, just trying to stay smooth. Mikey, Mikey stressed to me that smooth is fast, not to pinch off your corners and stuff like that. Um, we had a really good car opening week, and sadly, it was probably the best car I had all year, but that's the week that I, I met the foam and the steel yeah. wall, and we had to reclip the car, and the car was just never never the same since then. Oh, that, oh really? Okay. Yeah. So we never got it back to that, that nice race racing car where I was comfortable in it, and we battled a lot of power steering problems this year as well. I think there was only maybe one or two weeks where my dad wasn't covered in power steering fluid. And oh wow! Yeah, we blew up. I think it was six or seven of steer or the Ford Mustang steering racks this year. Oh man! So it was. There wasn't really anything we did wrong. It just right from the factory. I think COVID and not having the guys in the factories to work on the parts and whatnot. They were just coming from the factory wrong and. We were blowing out fittings and valves left and right. It was an expensive, expensive year just due to the, the racks that we had to keep putting in the car. But uh, we ended up swapping it to the sweet rack the last week or two of the end of the season. And definitely different with the sweet rack than the Ford Mustang rack. So I'm excited for this next year so we can get that fine, or tuned in and I'll actually be able to go out and do some racing. Well, it, it sounds it. Um, I mean, you know that the car is fast, uh, and it's funny that you bring that up about, um, you know, the potential for defective parts, because I've heard a couple of other racers just in different divisions talk about similar situations where, you know, they feel like, um, you know, some of these manufacturers have inexperienced help because of COVID or whatever, and um, yeah, they're sure. just not getting the quality. It's a quality control thing. So that is interesting. Um so yeah, I mean you you definitely had a good season and I assume next year you're back in the SBS car again. Now, um I have a hard time keeping track 
of all of the cars that are currently sitting in the uh, in the garage for you guys. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's uh, it's kind of like you know, uh, you you guys, Rich Richworth and and Mikey change cars like Cher used to change clothes during a concert. Um, so I have a hard time keeping up um, with all of that. But I think there may be an SBS car sitting there that uh, potentially. You could get into at some point. Um, have, has there been any conversation about that, or is twenty two just going to be more of a you know kind of a follow up year in the SBS class? It's going to be more of a follow up year for sure. Um, my dad's been pushing for me to get into a three fifty. He wants to go three fifty racing and make that the main focus of our race program. But okay. I don't really think I'm quite too ready. I need to get a little bit more comfortable in the car and. More sense. comfortable on the track with other other guys around before I go 350 racing. But so another year or two in the small block, and I, I think I'll make the jump up to the 350. And that's the goal, at least. I want to race against my brother. Nothing's better than a brotherly rivalry. So <laughs> it's yeah. always been talked about. And of course, as soon as I get in the small block, he makes the jump to supers and 350s. You know, so yeah, it goes um, and wins in both of them too. It's uh, really proud of Mikey with the job that he's done in those cars. Um, oh yeah, and uh, you know, and 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 seeing uh, you know the kind of driver that he's turned into, he uh, certainly had his share of uh, of interesting moments earlier in his career, and uh, you know, just really kind of smoothed himself out and i think he's matured so much as a racer um and a person for that matter probably too and it's uh, yes, for sure you know, for sure good. we were just talking about that last night me and mikey and some buddies went up to a uh, pole position oh, okay talking talking about how he's he mellowed out a lot and he doesn't get as hot as austin he still does sometimes but yeah he's still working on it but he's definitely matured a lot as a driver became a little bit more patient Instead of just seeing a hole and thinks he has to take it on lap one, he he sets some people up and makes good passes and stuff. He's definitely grown as a driver and as a man off the track. So it's very it's it's nice to see where we started with the mob light and how he was then, and then to the jump to the small blocks when he was still 16 years old, and now watching him while he's 29 now. I think gonna be 30 in March. So it's wow. it's nice being alongside there and watching his progression as a driver. It, it helps me a lot too because I used to be a hothead too. But I, if I can watch Mikey do that and kind of get over that, it helps me out a lot too. So yeah, it's tough racing such a mental sport, right? And you and and emotion can run high, but emotions cause mistakes too. And yeah. you know you really have to. Uh, it's kind of the old Iceman approach. You got to have ice in your veins when you're out there and. Um, you know, Mike certainly has learned to finish, which is why I think he's finished first and, and up front so often, um, you know, at the front of the field the last uh, few years compared to earlier in his career. And uh, I, I have to admit, Robbie, you really surprised me last year, but I think it it proved that the practice that you guys all had as rookies, because really all of you did did very, very well, um, you know, almost from the beginning of the season this, this year in 21, after having all that, you know, time to practice your cars the year before while there was no racing, and that seemed to be such a huge advantage. And, of course, the rookie race, you know, went almost right, right to the end, um, and that was fun to watch, and I feel like, the SBS class is just going to get more competitive next year because all you guys 
that were rookies have had a year under your belt, and then, of course, you got all the veterans there, so it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to be an exciting year. Within the next couple of years, I think I think it's going to be a really good division. Um, with the amount of rookies that we've had this past year, and I know there's a few veterans that are kind of stepping back and putting a couple of young guns in their cars and whatnot. And oh, really? The rookie, rookie class that's coming in this year is going to kind of filter out the whole lineup, per se. So it's going to be a very interesting class, and this next upcoming year and the year to follow. So it should be pretty interesting. Now, do you work with Mike during the week, or do you each have different jobs? Um, No, I, I work with my brother on the weekends. Okay. Um, that's kind of how we, we pay for our racing. I help him out on the weekend and whatnot, and that's kind of our race fund. And then we do two separate jobs. He's got his construction business, and I'm actually a truck driver for Eagle Beverage now. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Congratulations. So that's a cool job. That, that's how we pay our bills. And then the weekend, extra side work and stuff, that's how we pay for our racing. Okay, because I was thinking I saw at some point a post about you working with Mike, and I wasn't sure if that was a full-time thing or you were just helping out on a job or something that, that one time. But um, So that's pretty cool. So you do get to work with him sometimes, but you, you kind of do your own thing too full-time. Yeah. Yep. It's definitely nice working alongside him. It, Nothing's better than having a brother that you can work with and race with, and we're we're very very close. He's easily my best friend, and it's it's nice to be able to have that. Option, oh yeah, you know? for sure, absolutely. Um, so w- do you get to follow? Do you pay attention to any other racing other than what you know what goes on at Oswego? Is there any other racing that you like or enjoy? Uh, I don't mind watching dirt racing. I don't really follow it too much. Um, it's it's always fun to go and watch if we have an off weekend and we don't have any racing going on, which is rare. But um, we we normally will go out to Brewerton or okay. a couple of dirt tracks and watch them beat and bang. It's, it's a lot more forgiving on dirt to yeah. go and watch. You know, you can lean on each other and a lot more action per se. You try leaning on someone and asphalt and you're pretty much going for a ride so yeah yeah that's uh definitely using the bumper and and uh leaning on people at oswego is definitely discouraged unless you're in a street stock um, yeah because yeah. uh yeah. yeah you can take a tumble or cause them to take a tumble that's not uh necessarily a a good approach but i uh, know that you know you guys have a lot of people that kind of help you out and uh so, obviously, a, a big part of any interview is uh, talking about sponsors and thanking folks. So, uh, before I go any farther, I don't want to forget to do it. So, uh, who helps you make your racing happen, and who would you like to thank? Uh, obviously, Mike and uh, Carly. Carly, uh, her rookie, actually. Um, she's the car owner, so it, it's awesome that she gave me the opportunity to get into one of her cars and stuff. For sure. It's always been a good car, and she's always loved that car. But um. My dad, he, he works endlessly on it, building bodies and whatnot. He's there every Saturday night. He's waking me up on Saturdays to go load up the car and whatnot. He's a big part of my race program. And then we got uh, we got Chewy, who's been a sponsor with JNS Paving, um, Rich Worth there. Yep. He, uh, he helped us out a little bit this year with some sponsorship. And um, Woodchuck Saloon, they're always great people that are always in our uh, corner. Um. It, it was actually really nice working with Bobby Magner this year because, like I said, I grew up watching Jeff and Bobby and yeah. Dave Tritech work or race. Uh, Bobby was one of my favorite drivers as a kid, so now being able to work alongside him and learn from him, that's a very, very cool situation. And 
we got the brains of the FFD, Dan Denny, in there, too. So he's always good to go and pick his brain. And I'm learning a lot from those guys. And Wrench and Tyler Henry, they're always good. But if I need anything done or whatever, I can ask them to go do it, and they'll jump right on it. It's uh, We got a really good group of people in our corner. We are looking for some more sponsorship this year because uh, we're not going to be able to do a fundraiser, really, or anything with COVID. So oh, I am yeah, on the true. scout for some more sponsorship because the only sponsorship I really had this past year was uh, Woodchucks and um, Mikey, J&S Pavings, and uh, who else did we have? Oh, we had Craig Soper. Craig Soper helped us out with the vinyl and whatnot, paid for our vinyl with a lakeside property. Oh, nice. So he's always good people. He He's the original person that got Mikey in the 350s sure and is. gave him an opportunity yep. to get going with that with the 72 car. And it's uh. It's about it, though. So, like I said, we're always looking for more sponsorship. You can always use more sponsorship when it comes to racing. It's a very, very expensive hobby. But, sure is. Um, the group of guys in my corner are very, very smart. They're very trustworthy. And, um, Larry Morosky, he used to race at small, or small blocks, too. Yes. So he, he's a good – he knows motors. He knows carburetors. Um, Eric Howell. He's a good guy, too. He's always been on our race teams. He's a great guy. You can go pick his brain about anything. He knows motors and carburetors and stuff like that. So we definitely have a good group in our corner, and uh, I'm looking forward to this next upcoming year, learn some more, and hopefully make some bigger strides than we have this past year. Well, I mean, it, I, I thought you had a great year, honestly. I mean, you had a you had some car issues that, that I think that kind of slowed you down there, like you said. Uh, but boy, from the beginning of the year until you had that wreck, you were, you were progressing very quickly. Like, you know, like I said, almost got yourself a win. I have to think that in 2022, if you can get the car back, right, that win's going to happen. I, I, I had, uh, higher hopes for this past year. Obviously I wanted to win rookie of the year. My brother was the rookie of the year in the small block division his first year. Ah, out there. That's so right. Yeah. I wanted to follow in the, the same shoe steps, but, uh, Came up a little bit short. Like I said, the car wasn't the best it could have been, but I, I believe that we'll get it back to that point, and it should be should be very interesting. I don't want to say I'm going to win, but if you're a race car driver and you're not going to the racetrack thinking you're going to win, then you shouldn't be racing. Well, I agree. Opinion. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there are drivers who know they don't have the equipment or whatever, and they do it for the fun, and that's great. But, yeah, in your situation, you should absolutely have the confidence that you can win. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of funny, and I'm sure Mike would attest to this, and I always talk about it, when, there's that point where you finally do win, and then it's a little different after that because you, you go to the racetrack, and instead of – I know I can, I know I can, it's, I did. So, like, there's that little bit of extra, I don't know, I, I never want to call it swagger, but that little extra confidence or, or, or momentum that you go in with once you finally break the ice and get that first win, um, it seems like more wins follow. And I know uh, that that's probably going to happen for you as well. Uh, it was so cool to see you get your shot this year and get out there, and you certainly made the most of it uh that you could, and I think you had a tremendous rookie season, Rob, and, and looking well, forward to seeing what you can do in 22. You guys, the whole RBI team, uh, I mean, some of the, the best people at the track, and um, just uh, everybody's just having a great time, and I, I think you guys really exemplify 
what the sport of uh, auto racing is supposed to be about. You, you go out there and you, you do everything you can to win. The cars always look nice. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you haven't forgotten that it's supposed to be fun at the same time. And I think, uh, there are, you know, there are always other teams that could probably, uh, take a lesson from that. Yeah. Yeah. We always make sure we have a good time no matter what. So, um, it's, it's our way of life. It's the thing that's kept our family together no matter what you, you make more family doing it. Our, our race family is, it's incredible. It is. You, make, you meet yeah. new people, you yep. make new friends, and definitely a 24-7 type of job, per se, but um, it's uh, definitely something we make the best of. Is there a, is there a type of car, or maybe, and I, I, I'm going to take Super Modifieds out of this answer, because I'm sure that you'd love to get the Super and go race, but it, besides anything in Oswego, is there a type of car or a bucket list race that if you could run it once in your career you would what would that what would that be if there is one um i've always had the itch to race a, a sprint car i don't really think it'll probably oh, wow. ever happen our, our life's on the asphalt but uh i've always wanted to run a, a 410 sprint or at least wheel one around the track just for a couple of laps i, I think those are absolutely insane same they piece are. of the machinery <laughs> They, they are very wild beasts, is what they yes, are. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. You gotta have, um, you gotta have uh, a lot of courage. We'll put it like that, since this is a family show. You, you gotta have a <laughs> yeah. lot of courage uh, to to be able to 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 go full speed in one of those things, and uh, you know it. But it's it's kind of in the same family, obviously, as the supers and the SBS and all that. So that would would um, that would kind of figure. But uh, it's it's great to be able to have. Uh, a conversation with you and to get to know you a little bit. And uh, we, we definitely enjoy watching you run. And I was, like I said, I was really happy to see you get the shot. That is Rob Bruce. And we are going to be back with more of the groove right after this. Is your job sucking the life out of you? Wake up. You can do something else. Information technology. I know what you're thinking, but I'm not a math and science person. No problem. And no excuses. Because it's not rocket science, it's My Computer Career. Go to mycomputercareer.edu and take the free career evaluation today. You can start your new life as an IT pro in as little as four months. Mycomputercareer.edu, that's mycomputercareer.edu. So in our uh, next featured guest is Bobby Timmons Jr. And I'm really excited to... Uh, to talk to Bobby because again, this is the first time we always love first time guests on this show. And, uh, and I know that Bobby's family is so rich in super modified history, especially, um, in New England. So, uh, Bobby, first of all, thanks for taking the time to jump on and have some fun with us. I want you, if you would, to take us all the way back and tell me what you remember about your very first time at the racetrack um when you were a kid how old were you give us if you can remember talk about uh talk about what that was like and when it was yeah well uh thanks for having me on tom i'm a fan of your show fan of pretty much anything super modified related i man i couldn't tell you to be honest what my first one was it's i've just was born into it entrenched in it my uh my grandfather started racing in the 70s uh, at Beechridge Motor Speedway here in Maine, we're uh, we're all from up here in Maine. Um, okay, so Beechridge was the first uh, first track. 
Yeah, that was where my grandfather started, and uh, okay. my dad uh, obviously was was real young, and and my dad grew up around it, so he wanted to do it. And uh, my dad actually got his start at Star Speedway in the eighties. So if I had to guess, I was born in nineteen ninety three. My dad was racing at I think they both were racing at Star and Lee um, in the big block supers back then. So I'd have to guess that my first racetrack was probably Star or Lee. Um, but like I said, I couldn't tell you because I, it was fresh out out of the womb. I think <laughs> probably before you could even read, right? I would oh, think. Oh yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, like I said, I've been around it my whole life. I've never known any other form of life other than race cars and racing, and and I've been lucky to still be doing it. Now this this coming season will be my twenty first season as a driver. I, my my driving career is old enough to have a beer. <laughs> Well, there you go. I I don't know that I've ever heard that quite expressed that way before, but that's uh, that that uh, that's kind of funny, actually. Um, so yeah, you've been around a while, obviously, and and as you as you say, your grandfather first, and then your your dad. What do you remember about those days watching your grandfather and your and your dad race? I'm sure you've got plenty of memories of races that they ran, or stories that you could tell from back in those days. Yeah, I mean, I vaguely remember being a little kid going to Lee, uh, especially on Friday nights, and, and a little bit of Star. Um, don't really remember a whole lot. Um, my dad gave up driving on a regular basis. He never really ran the full-time Isma Tour, but he gave up driving, at least in the New England shows, when I was eight, and that's when I started racing go-karts myself. So. Oh, okay. I was pretty young, you know, when he was racing on a full-time basis, and uh, he had a couple of one-off deals and got his car back out, and, and I was a little bit older and got to help him, but it was, he wasn't, it, you know, he he built everything himself, and, and eventually, you know, he, you could almost get away with that in the early 2000s, but eventually, you know, the money and the equipment, you know, that everyone else had was was enough to overcome him, and he was more interested in going racing with me and my sister in the go-karts anyway, so. Uh, like I said, in 2001, he stopped driving full-time, and I think his last actual race, he ran an Isma race at Stafford in 2009 um, for okay. Dave Bushley, drove Dave's 38 car one time, and and it was okay, but the money that he spent to do that, he didn't really enjoy it, and he would yeah. much, said he would much rather help me. I don't know if he was lying or not, but <laughs> he hasn't he hasn't raced since then. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to get him in our 350 car, and he... Oh, that would be he, fun. He won't do it. He did shake down the first big block car we put together at the end of 2020. Uh, he did shake that down, and he's still – the itch is still there. He can, <laughs> he can say that it's not, but he's, it's still there for him. So talk about your career in go-karts. Did you race on dirt, or what kind of karts were you racing? Um, It was – there's no dirt up here, really, other than – other than the potato fields way up north, um, it's all asphalt racing here. Okay. Um, there's one dirt go-kart track now, um, which we'll probably touch on that a little bit later. But uh, that wasn't available when I was a kid. So all the racing I did was on asphalt in, you know, cage go-karts. I started in 2001, raced go-karts up until pretty much 2008. And uh, after 2008, we, we got a Legends car, and I ran a Legend car for three years. Oh, boy. Um, had some success, won some races, but knew that the Legend cars weren't going to be a forever home. You know, they're kind of just a stepping stone. Oh, of course. And while we had the Legend cars, we had started converting my dad's um, Isma car into a 350, 
super okay. to race at Lee. That was the, the plan all along. You know, all I ever wanted to do my whole life was just race super modifieds. Um, and we got done racing legend cars and the opportunity came to actually go pavement super late model racing, which wasn't really anything my dad or I wanted to do, but the opportunity was really good. It was good equipment and it wasn't, you know, most nowadays you, you pretty much, you just straight up buy the ride. I mean, you pay yeah. for it and, and it wasn't one of those deals, you know, a guy asked me to drive his car for him. And, and so we did that for six years. Um, did okay. It wasn't, we didn't set the world on fire. You know, it wasn't really the most popular guy ever, but we did do the Oxford 250 three times. I made the show all three times, so we can hang our hat on that. I won a couple of nice. 50 lap weekly races, never won anything on the pro all-star series tour, but we had a couple top fives and, and um, after that, we moved on to Super Modified Racing. How old were you when you stepped into the Super for the first time? So the first time I drove the car was in 2014. Uh, that was, I think I was, must have been 19 or 20. Yeah, it was seven years ago. So actually it was 21, um, the first time I finally drove a Super Modified. We raced it at Lee. Lee was struggling with car counts. There was only, you know, a small <clears throat> handful of us. And I ran the car three times and was was pretty much out to lunch with it, you know, getting used to it, tough, completely different deal. Didn't feel oh, like I'm any sure. race car I've ever driven before. So it took uh, – we actually didn't race it at all in 2015, came back with it in 2016, and that's when I started racing at Star Speedway on a full-time basis and started to get the hang of it pretty quickly at Star. The You know, Bobby Weber had built a decent little field of cars and the competition was good and, and star i thought was a better fit for those cars anyway so um that's where we ended up calling home so um obviously the transition from what the 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 weight model to the super yeah that had to be pretty drastic but um what did it feel like the first time you finally got in the super i mean that had to be uh, it had to be a surreal experience being that you watched your family race them growing up and then, you know, you finally get to get out there and take some laps. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. Like, like I said, you know, earlier, and I'll probably say it a hundred more times and this is all I ever wanted to do in life was race super modified. So when I finally got the chance, you know, it was, it was about three quarters of the way through the season, pretty late. And, uh, got out there, didn't really know what to expect. And I actually almost destroyed the thing. Um, oh boy. The left rear hub, the, the center nut on the axle came loose and the, and the left rear hub almost came off. I kept it out of the wall, but didn't really, that was the only practice, uh, I had with it. So I had about two laps, half speed, almost wrecking the thing. And it was already time to go race. You know, it'd been, it was kind of a messed up day. There'd been some rain or something. Something went on where they had to cut practice short. So I was kind of just fed to the wolves my first night out with it. So talk about then going forward, you ended up calling Star Home. Uh, kind of walk us through some of the uh, the highlights of your career to date. Yeah, so um, I think, like I said, we took 2015 off. Um, I was still dabbling with the late model at that point. And then at the end of 2016, I had gotten wrecked in a super late model race you know, for no reason. And I just finally looked at that. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. That you can find happen. someone else to drive it. But I said, we got a perfectly good super modified sitting in the, you know, in the basement of the, of his house. So I guess so this is, this is all I want to do. So we, we ran the last race, the last points race of the year at star and uh, ran actually really well. Uh, I think there was like 15 cars. I started last cause it was my first night out and we finished fourth. 
And oh, wow. uh, so, you know, that gave us some confidence going forward into 2017. And, um, this, this is most notably the most infamous, uh, moment of my career. Not, none of my friends won't let me live it down. Opening day at Star in 2017, I was starting on the outside pole of my heat race and I knew I had a really good car and I spun the tires coming to the green and lost it, got hit, overcorrected, piled it in the fence and flipped the thing over. All before oh, I even got to the start and finish line for the first <laughs> lap of the season. Wow. Well, you aren't uh, the first driver I've known that's done that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I've known of a couple of other guys that have been quick to uh, test the rigidity of their uh, their their race cars. But, uh, yeah, not the way you'd want to start a year, is it? No, and it, it wasn't luckily, you know, it's still have the wing up and the wing cylinders, but it, it didn't really wreck anything. It wasn't that hard of a wreck. I, you know, I was perfectly fine, hopped right out of it. But um, it's definitely tough to live that down, you know, even still. That's, you know, that was five years ago now. Everybody still picks on me. Oh, you know, keep it on all four wheels or, <laughs> or keep it wing side up. And I have to remind people that I've won six races in that car since getting upside down, but nobody wants to talk about those. Well, because there's nothing funny in it. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Like I said, everybody pokes fun at me, and, and even like Star Speedway, they have fun with it. You know, we, we fill out the driver information forms every year, and I just put career achievement was flipping over that one time, and they put up a post on their Facebook page, and every time it's a picture of me upside down. <laughs> um, but from then on, so we ran that whole season. I ended up picking off a win. Um, my first full-time season, which was, was cool. Uh, I never expected to, you know, win and, and to win a feature in a car that my dad, you know, my dad won one. It wasn't an Isma race. It was just a regular big block race at Lee in 96, but to, to win a, in a car that he had built and then we had built together was cool. And, um, and then we ran, started the year in 2018, um, completely better than, you know, almost polar opposite of how I started 2017. I won open a night at star uh, and didn't even intend on racing at star full time that year. We were actually going to race Lee full time. Oh, okay. and, um, we won open a night at star. So we said, well, shoot, we'll keep running here too. And Lee ended up not working out anyway. I only ran once at Lee that summer. And, and that was when I really truly settled in, um, to call star speedway home. Um, during the 2018 season, but after after winning on opening day, I proceeded to go two and a half years without winning a race again. So that <laughs> that kind of sucked. But yeah, if it were that easy, everybody'd be doing it, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and it, and it was you know as the car counts grew at Star, it was you know the competition oh, was yeah. real tough. You know, you had Dave Helliwell driving the Wickham Brothers 21 was real good at the time. Matt Seavey was real good. Um, you know, Tommy Tombarello, Steve Doofley, and then eventually Jeffrey Battle, yep. some little kid that none of us had ever heard of, little blonde hair boy yeah. comes onto the scene and starts whooping our asses. But uh, Looks like he's 12. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'd like to think we turned it around at the end of 2020. Um, honestly, as, as kind of dumb as it sounds in hindsight, so we put together a car that I had inherited from my grandfather when my grandfather passed away. It was an old Belfab car, but it was... It was in really good shape, and it had really good parts on it. So we decided we were going to try Isma Racing. Um, got a motor from Joey Scanlon, got this car from my grandfather, put it all together, and I ran the car for the first time at the Ollie Silva Classic at Lee. Ran okay. wasn't great. I mean, I I joke and laugh. You know, I passed Brandon Bellinger and Otto Sitterly. You know, I don't need to tell everyone that they broke that night. But <laughs> I, I beat, you know, I beat Otto Sitterly my first time in an Isma car. Um, so after I ran that night, 
um, I kind of got talking to my father, you know, about how these cars are supposed to drive and how they're supposed to feel. And we kind of started to figure out what I was doing wrong with the 350 Super. So we rehauled that, and it was night and day. Like, I, I got accused of cheating, and I understand why, because I went from, like, a seventh-place car on average to one of the fastest <laughs> cars there every night. And I won two out of the last four races we ran in 2020 and then opened up this year, 2020 was one winning two out of the first three between the smack tour and stars. So I'd like to, like I said, I think we found our groove with it. we got the car going real well. Um, you know, hopefully we can keep the momentum rolling, but the, uh, three fifties are so competitive up there. And I mean, some would say that it's kind of a shame that the big blocks aren't stronger or aren't running weekly anymore, but you know what? It's, uh, I'm just thankful to see that we still have big block supers up there. We got a, got that new series now. Isma's trying to make a comeback. Um, and man, the 350 division is incredible up there. Yeah, it's it's the most fun I've ever had racing. Um, they're very affordable for what they are. Yeah. Um, especially racing at Star. You know, two tires a week. Um, Weber pays real good throughout the field. He's always treated us good. Um, the smack tour deals cool. You got the travel, um, expense and, and buying four tires expense, but, um, you know, it's, that's all part of it. You know, I understand that going into it. Um, yeah, with, with the big block, it's, it's tough. No, they just cost so damn much. I mean, I, yeah. everybody knows that. And, you know, there are some positives. Like I ran not in the big blocks, but with my 350 last year, we went to the King of the Wings race at Oswego, and it was good, healthy fields of both 350s and big block cars that night. So it was that was a positive thing to see. And and I saw what uh, John Nakotra has planned for next year, and I really yeah. wanted to wanted to run at least one of those three races with our new big block car that we're building. But the way the schedules are lining up, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to to run any of his races, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. But, I really want to get to Oswego in a big block winged car for sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that w- I'm sure that would be a blast. Um, you've um, you've raced there prior, um, but not in a not in a big block with a wing, right? Yeah, I've ran I've ran every every 350 Super Classic that they've had. Yeah, that's I think, what I thought. I think four of them yeah. so far, and then we went to the King of Wings and. And to put it bluntly, I just suck out there. I don't know what it is. Um, it's a big old track. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's, it, very it's different. frustrating because, you know, Jeffrey Battle and, and the Lock Kid and Eddie Whitcomb, those guys, you know, I can run with those guys back home, but they go out there and, and they're still fast and I'm not. Um, you know, I've had some bad luck out there too. I got wrecked the first year. We went out uh, the second year. The wing broke and a spindle broke. I probably would have finished on the podium that day. I ended up fourth, so I, I shouldn't complain, but. Um, and then this year we went out three times this year and the first classic, we just, just were out to lunch and the King of Wings race, we were decent, finished fourth with a broken wing tree. And then we went out for the fall classic and absolutely destroyed the thing. Um, kind of a fitting way to end that race. That race was kind of a shit show for anyone that remembers it, but yeah. uh, So Oswego hasn't been too kind to me and, um, my grandfather actually one of his more infamous moments. I think it was the nineteen eighty two B main. He had quite a crash on the backstretch, yes, and that seems did. to be all anyone remembers with the green thirteen Timmons and Oswego is is for crashing shit out there. So well, 
What's funny is that, uh, you know, everybody associates Green with bad luck. And then I, you know, I remind him that Jimmy Champagne's still the winningest driver in Speedway history. Um, And then, you know, and then the number 13. And of course, you know, the for for years in the 70s, there was a Green 13 with a Shamrock on it, no less. And of course, you know, the. The car wasn't one of the the fastest cars at the track, but uh, was always fun to to look at. They had they had a ton of different drivers in it. And then here comes your dad with this beautiful looking car, and then you know you have that crash, and everybody's like, "See, it's been I'm like, okay, yeah. whatever." <laughs> you know, yeah, I've never been superstitious. I don't believe that you know no. what color underwear I'm no. wearing that day is going to dictate how my race car goes that night. And uh, I actually ran I ran thirty one. My whole life in go-karts, I was number 31 because my dad was 31. And then the car owner that I drove for in the super late model, you know, their numbers were 84 and 48. So I ran 48 and and then went back to 31 with the 350 super. And, and when my grandfather passed away in, I believe it was January of 2020, maybe it was 2019. I don't even remember at this point. That's sad. <laughs> I didn't know what to do to to honor my grandfather. We kind of had an odd relationship for a grandson grandfather and and in fact he never once saw me drive a race car which oh, wow. was which is very odd, you know, considering he's the reason we were doing it. Um but so after he passed away I said, "Ah, screw it. You know, 31 hasn't been that good to me. And I don't know it, you know, it doesn't know me anything." So I changed to the number 13. Yeah. Um in the season of 2020, you know, changed to green 13 and and like I said earlier, you know, we turned it around at the end of 2020, and I said, "Well, I'm keeping it till till it till it gets real bad." And and then this year was <laughs> this year was real good for us. So I think I think Green 13 is going to have to be my thing until I retire. There you go. Um, well, you've definitely had a chance to kind of be around for some of the best in New England super modified racing, and and uh, and of course the 350 class as well. And, you know, when I think about the talent that's come out of New England over the years, and even, you know, down here in the Carolinas, it's funny because, first of all, there's so many, you know, transplants that, that move down here, right? And, and, and uh, but the, the Southerners down here, when you start to talk about New England and talk about the racing there, and not just the Supers, but you know, modifieds and late models, and, and you start talking about names that have come out of New England and gone on to, you know, NASCAR or whatever. It's amazing how even people down here know those tracks up there, like Thompson and Stafford and, you know, and Star. And, um, you know, the 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 respect that the the Southern folk down here have for the racing up there, and it must be incredibly special to have been a part of that for the last, you know, 20 years or so, however long it's been. Um, and, uh, and to know that you're, you know, obviously third gen and, um, just the different characters that you've run across and had a chance to race against. I mean, um, are there some memories you could share, uh, of some, some maybe dynamic duels that you've had with, uh, some of the, some of your competition and, or, you know, anybody that you, you've been kind of mentored by that, um, you know, there's, there's always, always those kinds of stories out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I truly believe that short track racing in new England is probably the purest form of automobile racing in the country. Oh, uh, I agree. You know, I, 
I've never, I've never lived in the, in the Southern area, but I've spent some time, you know, in North Carolina race for weekends and, and been around it. And, and at a professional level, you know, that seems to be where you got to be. But, but as far as a short track race, and I'll take, you know, like you said, Stafford Thompson, those places, oh. those places really do, do the short track world good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, like I said, I've been doing this a long time and I've, I've come across all kinds of characters and, and, uh, the, the, the cool, the coolest part, you know, for me, you know, starting to, to turn into a super modified driver is a lot of the guys my dad raced with are still racing. Yeah. And, or they're at least they're still around the track. And, you know, like my, my first time ever driving a big block car at, at Lee, uh, riding around under yellow for the heat race, getting ready to go green. And Chris Pearly drives up beside me and flips me off. You know, and, and I've known you know, Chris, Chris and my dad raced forever, like so on. it was like, oh, you know, that's cool. And um, <laughs> that's the welcome know. to the club. Uh, yeah, there. definitely. Yeah. It was the, that was when it was the most surreal. I rolled out for practice that day behind Otto and Chris, and was like, what am I doing out here? I am in so far <laughs> over my head. But but now they're the the Isma guys are all cool, and and I've had a lot of battles, uh, heated battles, rivalries in the three fifties. Um, generally a good group of guys, you know, all super modified guys. I think we're all a little bit unhinged, so that's why we all get along <laughs> relatively good. Agree. But, you know, with, with Dave Helliwell when he was in the Whitcomb 21, Jeffrey, Jeffrey and I have had some absolute slugfest races, which nine times out of ten end up him beating me, uh, <laughs> unfortunately for me. But he's, but a he's good real racer, good to race man. with. And, um, you know, in Maine's – Maine's not really the hub for super modified racing. I think there's only four of us in the entire state with these cars, and we all live within 10 minutes of each other. Um, oddly enough, I just left earlier this afternoon, um, went to Bradley Babb's house. Bradley lives right down the road. He's got a 350 Super. Okay. And his brother-in-law is Mike Ordway Jr. that drives the famous sure. car, Booth 61. Yeah. So yep. I see those guys all the time you know, on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I've had plenty of Brad, uh, battles with Brad growing up. We, we started in go-karts the same year. We ran late models together, you know, similar career paths and both have now ended up in the supers, which, you know, his whole family were late model guys. So I would have never guessed that he'd end up in super modifieds, but he loves them, which I don't blame him. Yeah. It seems like Maine is more the pro stock, uh, country than it is the super modified country. I'm, I was trying to even remember back. I mean, obviously, Bentley ended up in Maine, but he was originally from Massachusetts. Um, right. So uh, I don't even – I was trying to remember who else even from back in the day would have been from Maine. And, uh, you know, I know that the uh, the folks who are listening out there, uh, and you may be able to come up with some names better than I, too, but uh, somebody's going to go, oh, yeah, I can't believe you forgot this guy or that guy. But it just <laughs> yeah. doesn't seem like – there were a ton of super modified drivers from the state of Maine, but boy, and I don't know of a driver from Maine. Like I, rem- I, I remember hearing about all the, you know, the pro stock guys and, and guys like Stan Missouri, who I had the, the pleasure of actually working with on a, a late model team down here at one point, um, you know, and, and, and some of the other guys, uh, you know, Scott Millington from years ago, his son Ryan is a is a Hickory Speedway track champion down here. Um, but there's just, you know, the the ones who came from Maine seem to be all great racers. 
Yeah, for, as far as super modifieds, I mean, it was always that was kind of the running joke was in you know the late nineties, early two thousands. It was just my dad and my grandfather. Okay, um, that's what I was going to say. Name. I couldn't think other than. And then you, guys. you had um, you had Vern Romanowski. He ran. Oh, is he from Majority okay. of the two thousands on the Ismator, and but he lives in like way up north Maine. Like he's an <laughs> hour and a half, two hours north of me. You know, luckily wow. I'm in southern Maine, which okay. You know, I'm about I'm about an hour from Star Speedway in in, uh, in the southern part of the state. So yeah, that was all there was for Isma guys growing up. You know, maybe I'm forgetting some too. But and then the 350 supers, we've got you know, like I said earlier, Bradley, myself, yeah. and then there's another guy, Ben Tinker, who's the next town over. He's got actually my old big block car. Okay. Uh, that we turned into a 350 and sold to Ben. Ben was basically my dad. Kind of took him in when he was. A, you know, 12 or 13 before my dad had any kids of his own and, and kind of helped raise Ben. So Ben's almost been like a brother to me. And he had a, he, he ran some 350 stuff, you know, in 2008, 2009, and then got away from it for a while. And then I, I finally bullied him into getting another car and <laughs> coming back racing with us this year. And we drug him out to Oswego. You know, he ran both the yeah, classics. I remember um, watching too, it. Yeah. Pretty much had similar results as me. We both ended up wrecked <laughs> in the last classic. So, well, I think about half the field ended up wrecked in that classic. That was uh that was a rough one for the three fifty six. Yeah, yeah I still I think I finished twelfth and I wrecked out around halfway. Yeah. So that tells you how that one I, went, but. that that just that was every once in a while and I mean you can't blame anybody. It just it's like every once in a while you just get a turd. And that race was basically a turd, though um you know, in terms of the number of cautions, but it was still a great race to the end with Holmes and, and, and Tyler. And, um, I mean, that was, it was still a, it was a good race, but my gosh, it was like, I've never seen, you know, so many, <laughs> so many wrecks of the 350 race before, but it was just, like I said, every once in a while, you just get a bad one. And that was definitely, uh, not pretty for sure. But, uh, yeah, no, that one was, that one was tough. That, yeah. that made for, uh, Tough end into a long weekend. Like you said, it weren't nobody's fault. It no. just circumstances. You know, like when I ended up wrecked, it was just a matter of the way the sun was going down and a mixture of all the speedy dry in turn one. I, I basically just lost sight. You know, I was wheel to wheel with Mike Nettishin going into the one turn. And when I could see him, we were good. And then I didn't see him. And then when I could see him, I was on his carburetor spinning into the hub rail. So oh, boy. It's one of those things that's, you know, hard to really – blame anything other than just bad circumstances unfortunately yes. and you don't wreck lightly at oswego um, no. i think i ended up taking Vern lafave kyle perry and mike bruce with me and we all ended up pretty badly wrecked unfortunately yeah. but part of the game yeah thank god for uh foam blocks at oswego uh, that's all i can say because uh the 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 wrecks some of the wrecks that we've had over the last few years without the foam would have been um, quite a lot worse. So, uh, but yeah, that's, you know, again, it was just a tough deal and, and, uh, hopefully, hopefully the next one will be a, a better draw and everybody will kind of settle down and, and, um, and, and make it to the end. But, um, so now I know that, uh, obviously nobody does this by themselves. So, um, this isn't my last question. I usually save this for last, but I just don't want to forget um, talk about uh, any sponsors or thank yous who helped you make all of all of all of this happen because uh, it's, it's yeah. So obviously... um, my dad my dad owns a machine shop and a fab shop which all stemmed from super modifieds. Excuse me. 
um, he he went out to Oswego when he was 17 with my grandfather just to watch. Um, and he got home and was like, hell yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to build one of these things. <laughs> and he just started buying equipment. You know, bought a chop saw, bought a welder, um, and actually built my grandfather's first car when he was 19. Oh, wow. And he started building one for himself. Um, and then it turned into... He started working on other people's race cars no and then kidding. he started doing other work and then he quit his job and went fully time on, on his own. And, and he's been in business for over 40 years now. And that's the main catalyst as to why we do it. It's just him and I, you know, we're not a big shop, just two man shop. Okay. Um, we build anything we can, you know, in house, our own chassis, wings, bodies, you know, all that stuff, which is what to me makes super modified racing fun. You know, when we were running late models, it was all store bought parts. Yeah. For the most part, I mean, we did put, you know, I put my own front and rear clips on the late models and, and tried some stuff to save money. But inevitably, the super modified racing is perfect for us because we can do all that stuff in-house. You know, I'd hate to I'd hate to think what it would cost me to buy some of the stuff I've made for myself because I know how long it takes and how much time and effort goes into it. But yeah, so that helps a lot, you know. Sometimes you, you walk over to the material rack and you take a length of chromoly off the rack and you don't have to pay for it. You know, that, that makes life yeah. easy. But uh, uh, another another huge help to me in the last couple of years has been Scott Martell. Uh, Scott was, you know, obviously ran Isma his whole life. Oh, yeah. He was one of my dad's buddies when they raced. And I don't, I joke with him. I said, Scott, I don't know why you help me so much. Or, you know, and he loves it. He, he's given me a... Bought, bought me quite a few tires this year and last year and, and awesome. uh, you know, helped me get out to Oswego. You know, the cost of getting out to Oswego for us is pretty tough being seven hours away, and he's always been the first one to jump on board um, and help. So we have a really good relationship with Scott, and I appreciate everything he's done for me. And um, another one is Ben Bozowski. He owns Hudson Speedway. Uh, he's helped me out a lot the last few years, and it was cool. Um, I actually won the 350 Smack Race at Hudson last year, so it was cool to get. Uh, a win, you know, for one of my for sponsors at his yeah. racetrack. Nice. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, Scotty, I always like Scotty and I, uh, I haven't talked to him obviously in a number of years, but, uh, in fact, somebody just sent me a picture, um, not too long ago. And, uh, it was of the time that Scotty had driven, uh, one of the old Matzik cars. Um, I think it was Skip. I think they. I think Skip still had it. Scotty drove it in a classic. I think it was the Troyer car that that Skip had, um, and I'd forgotten he even <laughs> forgotten he even did that. And it was like, wow, that that car actually looked pretty nice that year. Now Skip's cars always did, but um, yeah, I, I just had completely forgotten that Scotty. But the Martell family has been around for so long, and they're they're just such amazing people. And um, gosh, I mean, uh, you know. It's it's awesome that that he's able to to stay involved through you. Uh, yeah, Scott Scott's been real good to me. Um, in fact, um, some people saw it on on the internet or not, but Scott and his father actually have the last car that Jimmy yes, Champagne drove. I was going to uh, just mention Clyde that. Booth, yeah, and they're in the process of restoring it. And Scott had me uh, do the sheet metal work on it, which oh, was nice. a really really cool project to be a part of. It had some of the original sheet metal with it. Uh, you know, we, I did my best to try to make it look as, as close as Jimmy and Clyde had it. And, and it's, it's pretty cool looking at that thing. And the drivers, man, in the eighties, they were a different breed. I I look at the, that car and I just, I can't imagine showing up to the racetrack and going, yep, this is what I'm driving tonight. It's, 
It's crazy. It, it's well, a weapon. Um, it well, was fast, but it, it's a weapon for sure. You know, the it it, it 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 is interesting when you look back because, of course, um, you know, if you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, there were still cars that would run the classic with a 55-gallon drum on the back for fuel and it's kind of like why did you ever do that but um yeah. but but you look at that car and of course you know the big the big uh i think engineering marvel uh so to speak about that car other than maroon and green which you know everybody kind of looked at went, wow really uh but um was the fact that jimmy sat kind of like you know crooked in in the yeah. seat yeah um, and that's the way the seat's in it right now yeah Scott has the seat in it like that and i climbed in it you know naturally like a little kid anytime there's any form of race car you oh, know, in course. the shop i gotta yeah, climb gotta in it and in i it. couldn't even get in the thing the footbox was so small i couldn't even get my legs down in there and that's funny i, I can't imagine how jimmy drove it um, he said that it was very comfortable at speed um yeah they, that's kind of what me and dad assumed yeah, you know yeah. when you're sitting on pit road all slunched over to the left it yeah. probably wasn't great but once you got out there and got going it probably wasn't too too bad but. i remember in in jimmy's book i remember uh i don't know who it, who it was if it was daryl peckham or whoever but somebody stopped by and and jimmy was sitting like that on his couch just you know watching tv and he's like, you want to know why I'm sitting like this? And, and he said, well, yeah, kind of, you know. And uh, Jimmy said, because that's how I'm going to sit in the race car. And, you know, <laughs> it's like I, I can't imagine him, like, rehearsing, you know, for hours on the couch, like getting used right. to the. But, um, you know, he it, every little thing, like he was just always one step ahead. And, um, you know, I had, I had heard that, um, you know, the car was – uh, you know, was kind of erratic because they had built some chassis flex into it. And, and I don't know, you know, how much truth there is. I think that was in the book actually too. Um, you know, and they, they had a little difficulty controlling that, but then of course they had a series of motor problems that year too. But I always felt like that car, um, and of course, you know, Mike McLaughlin drove it the next year and, um, you know, I don't think he, I don't believe he won anything at Oswego with it, but boy, he, that car was blindingly fast <laughs> with the wing on. I mean, it was that thing flew with the wing. I remember watching him at Lancaster, and basically it was like he was running in some other dimension. Um, you know, he just skunked the field with it. Um, but uh, I always felt like that car, it, you know, if only Jimmy had, had you know, had survived, had not, you know, if that hadn't happened, it just, I feel like that car just, was an incomplete project. You know, it never, it never had the time to actually mature, you know, into what it could have been. And, uh, would have been fun to see what Jimmy and Clyde could have accomplished with it. Had they had more time together. Yeah, definitely. You know, Clyde, you know, is obviously and Jimmy too, two of the smartest people oh, to yeah. ever, you know, get their fingers into a super modified. So I, I agree with you there. Like you said, it's kind of an unfinished, unfinished project my my mom and dad they were i think they were just kids in high school um but they were there the night that jimmy got killed yeah, um, in the too. modified and my dad still remembers that that whole weekend <sighs> as if it just happened you yeah. know I've, I've heard the stories he's told me a hundred times and and uh you know jimmy was obviously gone way before my time but i've got uh i've got the book i did a book report on it when i was in high school oh, i've no read, kidding. It, I've read awesome. it a couple times i've got a little uh couple of them actually little jimmy 
champagne toy cars, you know, I modifieds that yep. I that I bought online. Just yep. you know, a fan of a guy that I've never met just because I, you know, he like you said, he was he was always one step ahead of everybody else, and and it, you know the the car that he basically came up with the the radical offset the 18 inch offset car yeah. is basically the same design we're all still running today you know yeah it's interesting to think about that too of course you know uh obviously a lot of modifications for arrow but yeah basically it's the same car and you know it's he was he was my hero and i i mean i was there that night and i i still can't tell the story of that weekend without crying especially the classic race um, you know, the way that they, they had Doug pull off and, you know, then just wave the, the checkered over the empty race track and Roy Sova saying, and Jimmy Champagne takes the checkered flag. I mean, that, I, that, that moment will be burned into me for, you know, for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, he just, he was really an innovator in so many ways. And you, and you just, you know, you wonder where things would have, would have went if he was, uh, you know, if he would have, uh, you know, would have not had that happen, you wonder, I mean, he obviously wasn't going to keep driving forever, but, um, you know, you just really wonder what else he might've dreamed up before the end of his career, you know? Uh, right. So right. yeah, just, I mean, and, and of course those days, you know, the seventies, the eighties, you had all that, that cross section of, of just incredible talent from, New England and the Midwest and Michigan and Oswego. And I mean, golly, um, we were those of us who were blessed enough to be alive and to have witnessed all of that uh, and to have watched those men. Like you said, those cars, I mean, you know, um, they definitely weren't as, you know, obviously as safe as the cars are now, but at the same time, you know, um, those men were brave men <laughs> that drove those cars back then. And I've always said that, you know, you had to really drive those cars. You know, you, you didn't have the benefit of the arrow and, and, you know, the car didn't drive you. You had to drive the race car. And those guys were just, you know, just brave men back then. And, and uh, to have done what they you know, what they did and accomplished what they did. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I think about, uh, the new England racing scene from back in the day. And I still, like I said, I tell everybody, I remember when Daniel Hemmerich won the legends million a number of years ago, Daniel's a NASCAR now, but Daniel, Daniel got a modified ride out of that and went up and was going to go up and run, you know, Thompson and, I think Stafford or wherever. I don't remember exactly, but I told him, I said, just so you know, <laughs> When you go up and you you go through the gate at Thompson or Stafford, you know, or a, a star or a track, I said, I said the way that you revere Hickory Motor Speedway, same thing. I said, and and honestly, I think in a lot of ways, I don't think New England racing has changed a whole lot in the last twenty years. I mean, I feel like the the crowds are still just as intense. The competition is still just as intense. Maybe the, you know certain divisions like the big blocks don't have you know, the car counts or whatever, but, oh, my gosh, the racing up there is still just incredible. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a tough. Um, I had my late model. I wasn't running the 250 this that year, but I remember Daniel came up and ran the Oxford 250 one year. That's right, and, he uh, did, yes. He made the race, but I, yep. I really think that was it. I don't think he did anything no. spectacular or, or was in contention to win at any point. I kind of remember him just being an also-ran, and that's, 
Oxford is Oxford's a different it's a different type of racetrack. It's very odd shaped. It's flat. There's not a lot of grip, so it's a wicked equalizer you know, for the it. local guys. Yeah. You know, my one of my my favorite jokes to tell. Um, I actually co-host a podcast of of our own. You do uh, with two with two of my other buddies called Black Flag Podcast, and I've told this story on there a thousand times, and I wear the joke right out. But I joke that. Uh, Christopher Bell came up one year driving for Kyle Bush and ran the Oxford 250 and I beat him in the race. You know, he got a flat tire under green and that's how I beat him, but we don't put that part it of the story. It doesn't matter. But, it's what the scoreboard he was, says. He was the same way. You know, he, he was fast. He made the race, but that was, you know, really it. He was never oh, yeah. in, in contention to, to win or anything. So, so I tell that joke a lot that I beat Christopher Bell in the Oxford 250 and I should be in a cup car, but. <laughs> um, that just speaks to the volume, like you said, of how tough racing in New England is, and and the three the three fifty superclass at Star, it is it's gnarly. Um, when I started I running at Star, there was probably twelve to fourteen, fifteen of us every week, and you had you had your four or five guys that were going to run up front and win races. And yeah. now, um, you know, Jeffrey Jeffrey's got our number. You know, he he dominates for for lot you know lack of a better term. But out of the eleven races we had last year. You know, he won three, and I won one. Everyone else was was one race one, and well, and there's there's ten or twelve, fifteen cars every single night at Star that can win. Um, it's it's super close and it's super tight, and you know, people. I think people make too much of the aerodynamics thing. Like aero is important on a super modified, but to me, it's we've all got really good equipment. We've all got talented drivers. We've all got you know new tires on. So aren't we all supposed to be pretty close to the same speed? Well, you know, we, and well, people are, you know, there's not much passing and, and, you know, the racing's not good. It's like, well, we're all, we're all going as fast as we can and we all have good stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of a product of asphalt racing. You see it all the way at the cup level. You know, people, they want to blame the arrow and, and the low horsepower for the lack of passing and lack of racing. But it's, to me, I just blame it on is we all have good stuff and we're all good drivers. We're all supposed to be the same speed, aren't we? Well, you know, there's, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, though, um, I think if you think back to the seventies, I don't think it was, I don't think there were bad, you know, obviously there were drivers who were bad, <laughs> just like there are today. Right. But I mean, I think some of the best drivers ever back in the seventies and eighties. Right. And, and, uh, but I think the difference is that th- there were big differences in the cars and a lot of them were home built and you, you know, um, and I do think the fact that, you had, like I said, you really had to horse those cars, um, you know, because they weren't friendly cars to drive. I mean, shoot, back in the 60s, they didn't even have power steering, um, you know, or anything. It's like it, you just, um, so I don't know. I think the arrow definitely plays a part because I think, you know, when you're, I think it does equalize in a lot of ways, but I, but I understand where you're coming from. And I, and I do agree to a point. I think, I think yeah, there I mean, are more the arrow equal cars The arrow is definitely important. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you knock a nose wing off a super modified, and you re- learn real quick how important the right. arrow is. Yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. I think the uh, I think that there are more equal cars now than than there yeah. were back then. You know, which definitely. Uh, and you're right. That also goes into uh, whether you're talking super late models or you're talking cup. You know the the Cup Series suffers from the same thing. Everybody says, "Well, you know, Arrow," and and I and I do. I I absolutely believe that the Arrow plays a big part in that. But at the same time, as you say, also, um, a lot of the equipment's equal. And you know, and I, and so I think in a lot of ways, 
technology in that sense has somewhat hurt the sport. Um, but at the same time, uh, obviously in the safety sense, I'm glad we've got it because, you know, wouldn't want to go back to the, you know, back to those days in any of these divisions, um, you know, for, for anything, but I'm waiting to see how these new cup cars play out. That'll be interesting because it definitely is more of a driver input kind of car than the, the, the car they've been running is. So we'll see where that, that goes. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I think, uh, especially in the 350 class, there's there's just, there are, there's a ton of good cars out there and there are a ton of great drivers. Um, I'm so impressed with the growth at Oswego in the, in the 350 class and the talent, um, you know, and, uh, but yet obviously you guys have years of experience. So when you come out there for the most part, and I know you haven't had a lot of luck, but you know, I think there's a reason why, uh, you know, Jeffrey and, and, you know, uh, and those guys come out and, you know, and they're always up front. And yet this year, I feel like that gap closed a little bit, especially toward the end. And, you know, the car that ended up winning the classic with Bobby Holmes, um, you know, I don't think, uh, I'm not saying it's not an equal car to anybody else's, but I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm not, I'm saying I'm not sure, uh, you know, of the differences between it and, and, you know, but I think it shows something about the 350 class when some of the older cars can still keep up. Yeah, that's that's the awesome part about the 350 class is you don't need to have, you know, a $100,000 brand new wind tunnel tested bullet to, to be competitive. You know, my car, now granted, I've cut the front and rear clips off it, yeah. put different shock mounts, all that, but my car was originally built in 1993. And a lot of the 350 cars out there are are pretty old, and yeah, and and I agree too with what you said about the gap being closed. I mean, the the first couple of times that we did go out to Oswego, it was you almost didn't feel welcome as a New England guy because really? all they did was complain. And and uh, you know, like not to not to be an a hole, but I told you know Steve Joya one one of the classics. I'm like Steve. New England's had these cars for 30 years. Exactly. You've had these cars for nine weeks. You know, what did you expect to happen when we all came out here? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, I'm impressed that it's it's closed as quickly as it has, you know. Um, and I think all the more going into this coming year, I'm sure it will. And and I think that's great. Um, you know, I mean, I, I and I, uh, I had a chance uh, to sit down with Spencer – uh, from the the Northeast Big Block Super Modified Series, and and kind of interesting what they've got going on. What what are, what is your thought about uh, what uh, Tom Mayberry and and his team are doing with this new series? Yeah, um, I I don't really know how to feel just yet. You know, I I Spencer's a friend of mine. I've known him for a while. We've raced together growing up, and yeah. And he, you know, kind of admittedly told me he didn't know nothing about super modifieds when they weren't were going to get this deal going. And, and we called and, and, and I had some ideas and, and we talked back and forth and I, something needs to be done to to try to save the division. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm smart enough or qualified enough to to know what the answer is to save that. But, you know, I give I give those guys credit. They're trying. I do you know, too. They're trying to do something. They're trying to make it so. These cars are a little more affordable and a little more maybe maybe somebody might be willing to race one. You know, if it, you know, with Isma, there's only three or four New England shows in a year. 
that's not enough racing for someone to justify the cost of building a car and racing it. Um, do I like their dates on their schedule? No, none of well, other than a couple look appealing to me. And some of them conflict with star races. Some of them conflict with Isma races. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not a promoter. I don't own a racetrack, so I shouldn't be the one, you know, spewing out what I think. But there's plenty of races for super modifieds, be it 350 and big block cars. Um, there's plenty of options to race, but I, I kind of think too much is, is going to hurt. Um, going to hurt it more than help it. I, I agree wholeheartedly with what. Uh, John Nakocher said on here a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, we need to have less races, but make them bigger. I've been, I've been beating that drum for years. Well, and, that's, that's, an you know, between the, the smack series and star with my three fifty, I've already got 15 races on my schedule, which is really all I can afford to do. And then now try to pile on three or four new England Isma shows, eight of these big block super series shows. I, you know, I know I can't do them all. I certainly can't afford to run that many big block shows. That car costs a lot of money just to take it out of the garage. Never mind, you know, try to race it. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I applaud them. They're trying, they're making an effort to, to try and save super modified racing. Um, you know, like I told Spencer and, and I'll tell you and your listeners, I'm going to do the best I can to support it, but I know I can't do all of them. Um, you know, I hope, I hope it takes off. I hope it does well, but it's we'll have to probably just sit back and see and let yeah. let time tell us how it's going to work out. It'll be interesting. I mean, I you know I was I was surprised at all the drivers who have already committed you know to running the series, and um, you know, I mean, again, it, it's it's a two edged sword. I mean, you know, the the car counts that Isma's had obviously haven't been that healthy uh, over the last couple of years. Even in New England, they haven't been great, and so. You know, at some point, you try to do more sort of efficient shows and, um, you know, haven't seen what the purse is going to be yet, uh, you know, compared to the ISMA purse. But, you know, ISMA got to a point where it was a lot of money to book an ISMA show and then you only have 10 or 12 cars show up. So it's it's just hard to, you know, it's hard to to... As you say, they're 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 definitely making a move. Um, you know, the most expensive parts of a super are the motor and the tires, basically, right? I mean, that's in. So they're trying the the spec motor to try and you know, but of course, everybody's going to absorb the cost once of buying a spec. Um, you know, and I like that they're trying to to use gearing to at least allow the the big box to still compete. And I hope Tom. He does as good a job with that as he has in pass with the crate versus the bill, then it'll probably be all right, uh, especially on the tracks up there. But you know, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I I I'm glad that Isma's, you know, they've got the three races that John, um, kind of got started, and and uh, I don't know. It's hard to, you know, um, the 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 theory of let's race less times, but you know make the races bigger um you know that that kind of intrigued me too because it's kind of like well if you know if 10 or 12 races wasn't enough races to to justify building a car and competing then you know if you go down to what's the number five seven you know how do you how do you uh you know how do you determine what's the right balance and and you know what the purse ought to be i love what john's doing and i i feel like that may go a long way toward uh, helping Isma to 
to get back off the ground again because, you know, they've got those three shows to kind of anchor on along with, you know, Star and, and some others. Yeah, it's certainly to me, and this was one of the things I first told Spencer, was you you got to make it so that cars that are ISMA legal can just show up and race because that's for your clientele. You know, you can't expect just for the sake of numbers, say there's 20 big block super teams in New England, you can't expect all of those guys to get rid of their, their steel, right. you know, their build exactly. motors and go right. crate engines. And I said, no, I can't, you know, the, they, they advertise costs for these crate engines is still way more than I paid for the built, you know, motor that I'm running currently. And I said, it's, it's perfectly good. It's on an engine stand. I just refreshed, you know, some yeah. of it. I'm not getting rid of it at this point. So at least they were, they were wise enough to, to allow, you know, ISMA legal engines, sure. I should say, to, to run. And that's the only way I'd be able to, to run the series. And, and it's good that ISMA still has some New England shows. I think they go to Lee, Claremont, Monadnock. Yeah. And again, try to do as many of them as I can. The, you know, the two big ones that I got circled on the, on the calendar for me personally is the Star Classic with ISMA and then sure. the Thompson World Series with, with the New England series. Um, you know, and any other race I make after that will be, you know, strictly bonus for fun. But, um, like I said, I, I hope it works out. I hope it, it leads to a, you know, a promising future for big block super modified. You know, I feel like I'm just, just finally getting my feet wet with one. And, and, um, I don't know if I'd mentioned this already or not, but my dad and I are building a brand new car right you now. Didn't. No. To, uh, to run, um, you know, with the wing shows with, I'd like to someday, you know, put a tail wing on it and try Oswego without a top wing. Yes, please. You know, um, but you know, we'll all see, play it by ear. Basically the, you know, the 350, that's, that's my main squeeze that, you know, that car takes care of me and, yeah. and we run good enough with it that I damn near broke even with it last year. So that'll be my main focus again, uh, going into this season is, is, you know, star speedway and see if I can beat that Jeffrey battle kid. <laughs> That's everybody's goal. And it, uh, and old chase lock is quickly, uh, quickly getting right up there into contention too. Uh, that I think again, very, uh, talented, uh, third, what one, two, three, one, two, three. Well, I guess third gen, because, uh, obviously, he and Ryan are brothers, so yeah. Uh, but you know that's a that's a talented uh, young driver too. So just so much competition in the 350s. I love that division. But uh, yeah, I hope the same thing. I mean, I I hope you know as I told Spencer in the interview, I said I hope that this will generate more cars for competition across the board because that's really we we have to be able to create more excitement for big block supers across the board um i don't know that you're going to take your you know your uh your your spec motor and go to oswego with it and compete but um at least in the new england area if you can get the guys to you know to stay off each other's dates and i think um i think there's only one date that conflicts with with isma um and you know if you can stay off each other's dates then hopefully you get people going back and forth and supporting both series um you know the way that some of the modified drivers do you just you know you go back and forth because shoot you'd you'd have a lot more opportunities to go and compete and you know and race your car and i would think that maybe that would entice some folks to get in and obviously it sounds like the spec motor is uh less expensive um you know if you're just starting out uh you know maybe you'd start with a spec 
and, you know, not go out and buy a big block. So hopefully any new rookies that come in, you know, um, but I don't want to, I don't want to see them. I totally agree with you. I didn't want to see them not allow the big blocks to run because it's, it's very difficult to just throw away, you know, a handful of, uh, Fifty thousand dollar motors, um, right? You know, right. and okay. where else do you where else do you go with them? What else do you do with them, Bobby? It's been it's been a great time uh, talking to you and getting to know you a little bit and uh, kind of having some fun recapping your career and look forward to having you back on again uh, once the season gets started. Hopefully, you go out and uh, win some three fifty races early, and we can uh, have you on to do a victory lane interview on the show. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I appreciate you having me. You know, you got my number now. Don't ever be afraid to reach out. You know, like I said, I I I co-host a podcast already, so I yeah. I like tell talking. us, I'm, like, I'm, I'm uh, talking, I, so. I no idea about that. Tell us, tell us where where do we find this podcast? What do you guys talk about? Give us some details here. Uh, so it's called Black Flag Podcast. Um, it's three of us from Maine: Charlie Sanborn, Brad Saucer, and myself. You know, they started it. It was their show, and I co-hosted it for a while, and then I, I kind of had to step away to focus on some other things. And uh, I just rejoined them as a full-time host. Um, you know, it's a it's a main based. We we talk about a uh, little bit of racing, a little bit of partying. You know, um, <laughs> us three, we're we're all pretty good friends, and we try to travel together. Uh, like we're all going to the Atlantic City Indoor Show here at the end of the month, and then we're ah. all going to New Smyrna, Daytona for Speed Week. So. It's basically just the three of us recapping our racing adventures. Uh, one of the other hosts has like a limited late model and a super late model that he races. And then nice. the other host, Brad, he just strictly goes as a fan. You know, he loves to hang out and watch racing and just take it all in. So it's basically just a weekly show that we recap our shenanigans. Um, it's on Apple, Spotify, you know, all the same places you'd find this show. And what's the, the name of the podcast again? Uh, Black Flag Podcast. Black Flag Podcast. So look for it uh, on your favorite podcast platform. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to have to go check out some episodes of that. And, again, thanks for taking some time. That is Bobby Timmons, and we'll be back with more of The Groove right after this. Okay, folks, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors here on Inside Groove, Indie Performance Composites. They're a premier composite design and manufacturing company creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Jeff West and his team are amazing. They do all kinds of work in the motorsports industry from dirt tracks to NASCAR to IndyCar, super modifieds. It doesn't matter if you've got something that you need designed or fabricated. Let them help you transform your idea, your vision and your budget into a workable, high performance solution. They have all kinds of services from 3D printing to finishing services, end-to-end composite solutions is what they are. Check them out, ipcindy.com or indieperformancecompositesinc.com and tell them that the folks from Inside Groove sent you. Welcome back to The Groove. Hope that you enjoy both of those interviews with Rob Bruce and Bobby Timmons as much as I enjoyed uh, actually sitting down and talking to them. And um, I was, uh, again, thankful to be able to finally get those out there. And uh, Danny Sewell, our guest next time. So excited about that as well. Okay. What is in a number? Well, it's the number 90. Um 
Okay, this is going to be one of those that um, I feel like I'm going to miss a few because um, just not not as sharp as I used to be. Um, I'm going to start current and work backwards because I have the feeling it's going to be harder for me to do the more current, whoever they may have been, than to, to go backwards or to, to do the oldest ones. Um, let's see. So Ray Graham is... The first one that comes to mind, I believe, um, the number 90 was Ray Graham Jr. for I think he may be the most current one. And I'm 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 not I'm going to, you know, because I know that Cody and there were a number of drivers, 90, 91, whatever that that all was. I think they had, they had 11 for a while. Yeah, they had 11 for a while. So um, Cody may have driven the 90 a little bit or whatever, but. Uh, Ray was the one that that I think is most associated most recently with the 90. Um, Now, uh, for some reason, and this is where I think my mind, because it plays games with me all the time now, um, I want to say that Greg Furlong was in a number 90, and I want to tie that to Jeff West somehow, but I... I I don't know why Jeff would have a backup car number 90. Um, he was 01, so I don't know how that... But I, I think I remember it at one point that he had... And I don't know if it was the same car that, that was the one that Bentley drove. And George Kent, I think, drove a couple times. And I don't even know who else um, drove it. But um, I think that... At one point, that was the 90 that Greg Furlong started his super modified career in. And I, I would guess there were probably maybe one or two other drivers that drove that car. And, you know, with it, it maybe it wasn't 90, but that's what I, that's what my mind tells me. So I'm going to go with it. And, uh, of course, you'll all uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, let's see. Uh, gosh, I don't remember um, another... I don't remember another 90 right off the top of my head uh, until all the way back to the first 90. And this is where somebody's going to go, well, you missed this one and that one and that. Okay, great. Good. Fill them in. That's why we do this. Um, put them in the comments. The first 90 that I remember is Dick Dummigan's number 90 from the early 70s and I guess back in the 60s too and I remember more about this through the programs I keep rereading than um than I do from actually seeing that car on the track because I don't think it was on the track for more than a year or two from the time I started going in 73 um, but I, I do remember reading that Graham Belia, I think drove that car back in the sixties. Um, I think it was that car that he drove. Um, and then he went back to modified racing and never did get back into supers, I think is how that went. And when I started, I think there was a guy named Joe Orso that, also, and again, it, this might not even have been the Dummigan car, but I think I remember he drove a number 90. And I don't know too much about Joe. I only know just from seeing the, the name and, and, and that in the program because I don't think 
I don't think Joe was still racing when I started going, or at least I don't remember that he was. I think the driver that was in, I know Ronnie Wallace also drove for Dummigan for a bit, and uh, or maybe a couple of years. The, the, the driver that was in it, I think, when I started going was, or at least the driver, the first one I remember seeing in the car was Chuck Siprich. I think that was Chuck's first super modified ride, if I'm not mistaken. And let's see. So now I'll try to remember who I've read from programs or um, just things I've seen maybe in posts or whatever. But I think Freddie Graves drove it once or twice. I think uh, Norm Macrath maybe once or twice. Bob Stelter once or twice. That car, I feel like, had a lot of sort of one-offs, you know, um one nighters in in it uh over its time um there are probably others too and i just again i don't remember because a lot of that's just from reading old programs um but that was that car i think was the car that let me think here because uh that went to who was it it was a white 50 I think 40, no, 40 would have been Macrath. I know he didn't buy it. I think it was maybe a 50. Um, I want to say it was a 50. Mike Hogan, maybe Mike. I think it was, I think it was Mike Hogan. Um, and I, I want to say that was the old Dummigan car, the, the, the 90, I think the one that, let's see the one that, Corky Stockham. I remember him having a car, which I think was a Dummigan car. I think Sammy Carista ended up with that one, maybe. And I don't know where it went from there. It, it may not have gone anywhere. Sammy may have been the last one to have it. But that was all in the 70s. Um, I'm pretty sure I think the guy Mike Hogan rings a bell. Um, and so I think it might have been him. And um that car was nice. I remember the white, and I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was 50. That, it looked nice. Um, and I think it ran pretty good, whoever it was it was in it, but I think it was Mike Hogan. And so, again, if there's any other ones, that, drivers that you know of that drove for Dummigan, um, by all means, because I feel like, see, this for me, the, the, that's the history that we want to kind of, that's why I love doing this show, because you get, Unfortunately, you know, a lot of these guys are not around anymore for us to sort of talk to. That's why I love the episode I did with Steve Miller, because you you go through all the drivers that he had and that was a rotating seat, too. And um, I feel like sometimes, um, you know, every week it was somebody different at different, you know, for, for, a, for a period of time, you know, there would be two or three or four weeks where it was a different driver in the 16 every time. Um, and that, that to me was fun, you know, seeing those owners like that, like Hermie Graf in the 15, which again, this, you know, huge long list of guys that were in that car over the, over the time that, that Hermie was involved in, uh, in super modified racing as an owner. And I just feel like that period was just so glorious. And that's why I keep rereading the the programs because it's just so cool 
to remember. And I think the biggest thing that I think about when I go back to those days is how lucky those of us were to who are old enough to have lived those days. And I'm not saying any other period wasn't awesome because super modifieds are awesome no matter what. And even still today, super modifieds are awesome. Um, we may have some, you know, debates or issues or squabbles or whatever, you know, and maybe the cars, whatever. Okay. But super modifieds are still awesome. Let's all remember that big picture. Um, my world without super modifieds in it would be, um, much less exciting as far as motorsports goes. And I feel like a lot of you would feel the same way, but back in those days, um, those were Romy Caruso said once those were the salad days. And I, when he said that to me, I was young and dumb and didn't understand what that phrase meant. Like what, what you, you know, um, I kind of did, but you know, having, having grown up and looking back, um, salad comes before the meal, right? So those were the, the days that, that super modified racing was growing up. We had come out of the sixties, which they were cut downs and uprights and, oh gosh, I mean, just scary cars. Um, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, people using 55 gallon drums hooked to the back for fuel for the classic. That's scary, right? Um, those were brave people <laughs> that drove those cars. But when you get into the seventies, I feel like is when super modified racing first started, it was still run what you brung, but you know, the, the, and I'm not saying that the cars were as safe as they are today or whatever, but you started to see some of, you know, the Oswego made uh fuel, was it fuel bladders mandatory? Uh, I think fairly early on in that, that decade. Um, and you know, you started seeing more attention paid even to, um, the roll cage configurations cause you had, and I never really did understand why you had sort of two like V shaped or U shaped hoops that would come together at the top where you couldn't climb in from the top. You had to climb in from the side, or if you're Nolan Swift, you have a door. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, you, you know, you started to see some of those safety advances that were, were creeping in to, uh, to the racing and Oswego was right on top of that. I feel like maybe even leading it in a lot of ways, um, to where, uh, the cars did get much safer and there were just the, gosh, the, the, I keep going back to this, but I feel like for us, you know, the, the variety of design in the cars, you know, just the look of it, the look of them, the shape, the bodies, the, the, you know, the width, the, the, you know, some of them were very set back. Some of them, the cage was closer to the motor. You had the side engines, rear engines, all that, like the seventies were to me, um, the, the, the most interesting decade because that period of time was the time when there was the most innovation, the most variety, the most, you know, now, um, I, I feel like as I look back, um, 
I just feel very fortunate to have lived all of that, to have been able to, and not just supers either, but in racing in general, I've been really binge reading um, a lot of, you know, historical books about different things in racing, not just um, one particular division or whatever, but driver biographies um, just read a great book about the indie uh, car cart split USAC cart indie car all of that mess from you know the um, 80s and 90s and um, just the backstory on that and the details that I learned um, you know again just corporate you know basically that's that's all it all it kind of was was you know corporate people just you know basically fighting each other for control and direction which is um interesting um you know to think about in the context of kind of what we've had in supers for a while with you know we had we had a split like that too right is but in its own way but it was still kind of the same cars you could go run whichever whenever and whatever now we got what we got right so um but i feel like the you know that's that story was amazing um you know reading elio castroneves's biography now it's very very uh interesting story um just read a lot of a lot of different um you know read all of dale jr's books that jay gers has written read Al Hunter jr's biography um they're all very very riveting very interesting stories everything i've read i haven't read a you know read a buddy baker's book is one of the funniest books you'll ever read because it's all about buddy telling stories the way in it's in its buddy it's in buddy speak um, and, uh, it's, it's way too short. Honestly, I, of, of all the drivers who passed that I wish I could have interviewed Buddy Baker would be right at the top and not because of the last name, but because I just thought, you know, he, nobody could tell a story like Buddy Baker. All right. So, uh, with that, we'll just, uh, leave that at that. Uh, but I, uh, hope, uh, maybe some of you will go reach out and read some of those books. My point to all of that was to say that, uh, I think the overall history, uh, of the sport would, would suggest that the, the 60s, 70s, you know, again, perfect decade all the way across. Cause I think, I feel like from the eighties forward is when, um, you know, technology and all of the big money and all of that started to come in. And um, it isn't that the sport isn't good now, but it's just different. So like back then you had all those, those characters uh, across the sport. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what part of the, what division or whatever you follow. I just feel like the seventies were such a golden decade IndyCar, you know, F1, um, you know, modifieds, dirt, all of those, I think across the board, it was just an amazing time for motorsports in this country and across the world. And um, so uh, kind of fun to have that discussion. Okay. I uh, want to say thank you to not only our sponsors again, Skip's Fish Fry, and of course, uh, JNS Paving and Indie Performance Composites, but also thank you to each of you who listen and share this show. All of you be safe. Have a great week. And thanks again for joining us. We'll be back very soon with Inside Groove number 91 with Danny Sewell. So until then, I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening. So long, everybody. You've been listening to Inside Groove, powered by IPC Indy. 
creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Find them on the web at www.ipcindy.com. Inside Groove is a Race Chaser Media production. For more exciting and passionate motorsport content, follow Race Chaser Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and visit racechasermedia.com. The opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, affiliates, or marketing partners of Race Chaser Media. No part of this show may be reproduced in any manner without the expressed written consent of Race Chaser Media. Thank you for listening.